Book of Judges this morning. Book of Judges, chapter 1. It is good to be back. After a week away of vacation and two Sundays away from church, I am uh, chomping at the bit to get back. And uh, usually that means that y'all need to settle in because I've got like three weeks worth of messages lined up for one week. But that's not the case this morning. Uh, this morning's sermon is a little bit more of a intro to the book of Judges, a little bit more of a, an introduction to where we're going to be going over the summer. So this one, uh, it, it's got some stuff for us, there's some stuff here, but really what it does, uh, hopefully, is set us up for the rest of uh, the, the summer. And so I'm excited to get back and to get started here, and I don't, I don't know, do any of you guys have irrational fears, like things that you know you absolutely should not be afraid of, but you just are? Um, I know you do because you guys have told me and you guys have some, some weird ones too. And I don't have, I don't have too many, uh, but I, 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 I do have a, a couple. Uh, one of those is when I go on vacation, we do that whole drive back from, uh, from the beach where we were at this time and do that whole drive back and you know, the whole trip back, I'm fine. But something happens in the last 20 minutes or so. Uh, I don't even know, I think Emily knows about this one, but I try to keep it to myself because I know that it's irrational, and so I just try to kind of squash it down. But the last 20 minutes or so as we get near the, uh, the interstate exit and we get off the interstate, I start to get really, really anxious when we've been gone because I'm convinced that I'm going to pull into our neighborhood, and as I turn the corner, our house will have burnt down. I am absolutely convinced that that has happened, and somehow our neighbors couldn't get, get a hold of us. We, we couldn't find out that, uh, that this had happened, and so it would just be sitting there in ashes, and they'll be like, sorry, we tried, but nobody answered, and that was it. Um, and so whenever I turn the corner and I see the house still standing there, I'm always like, ah, that's good. Now we're good, and I'm, and I'm happy. So I know that that's a little bit, that a little bit ridiculous, but I swear to you, uh, it's true. I actually do get a little bit anxious about that. And the second thing is that when I'm away, uh, this is true in general, but it's always true when I come back from vacation, I'm worried that when I'm, when I'm gone, that whenever I come back for the first Sunday morning, one of two things is going to be true. I'm going to show up and you guys are going to be like, oh, we didn't really miss you. Like, you, you could be gone again, and that would be fine. And I know that would be, ca- be the case uh, for, for you guys because you were served so well by Chris uh, and by Jimmy over the last couple of weeks, and I hope you guys have taken time to show appreciation uh, for that. But I'm also a little bit nervous like that, that generally I'll show back up on Sunday, and something will have ho- happened while I was gone, and like y'all would have taken a vote and just been like, hey, we're taking this Sunday off. And so I would show up, and this room would be empty. So I appreciate y'all being here and helping me to ease my anxiety and that you decided to show up this, uh, this Sunday. Um, and so we're, we're past that now and we're here for this series, kicking off a new series. We wrapped up our, our series, Prophets and Kings, a, a few weeks ago where we were looking at Elijah and Elisha in the books of First and Second Kings. Uh, we're going to stay in the Old Testament, but we're going to back up just a little bit in our story. 1 Kings and 2 Kings kind of tells the end of uh, the nation of Israel, the end of uh, their time. It it goes all the way up to their exile and kind of how things come to a close. We're going to go kind of back to the beginning. So the book of Judges follows the the book of uh, Joshua, uh, where Joshua kind of comes in, conquers the promised land, sets up shop, says, we're Israel, we're here to stay. And then the book of Judges is right 
after that. So we're going to spend the summer looking at the book of Judges and then the book of Ruth. Those will be the the back-to-back because those are kind of together. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, those flow chronologically. That doesn't always happen in the Bible, but those three, uh, they do flow chronologically. And the book of Judges is a dark, bloody, confusing, complicated, ugly book. There's no other way around it. It is not like an uplifting book. It has stories that we like to think are about our biblical heroes, but that's only because we've only read them in children's Bibles and not the actual Bible. Uh, We'll hear of heroes like Gideon and like Samson, but we'll quickly see that these guys are not heroes really at all, but instead they were very flawed people that God uses in spite of who they are, not because of who they are. Um, and whenever I decide to start a next series and go to the next series, I go through uh, a process of kind of working through what do we want to talk about, where do we need to go, a lot of prayer. Uh, and I'm always asking the question whenever I kind of land on a book and it feels like this is where we need to go, why this book? Why does God want me to teach, want us to go through uh, this book at this time And what does he collectively want to teach us together and me individually? And sometimes that answer is really clear. And sometimes it's really not. And it would be easy to punt on the book of Judges right now. Honestly, coming into this, I kind of hedged a little bit and said, is this really what we want to do? After all, we have enough darkness on our TV screens and our news feeds Does Sunday morning really need to be that way too? Can't we just do something that's uplifting, that's that's light, that we can all kind of laugh and collectively feel good about? Can't we just do something like that? Can't we just skip the book of Judges for now and do one that we all uh, like? And I've got one answer for why, why I feel like this book is a good one for us to spend time in this summer. And that's because the book of Judges is written for failures. It is written for failures. It is written to show how God responds to a people that completely fail. And in reality, whenever we get into this book, I think you'll see people that never even wanted to, to uh, ha- never really even had the desire to succeed in the first place. They were failures on every level. And despite their continued failure, God's love never fails. God's hope never goes away. And God's faithfulness never wanes. Perhaps you don't need to hear that message. Perhaps this morning you you don't resonate with that. That idea of failures and God always being there just isn't, isn't really what you're tracking with. Perhaps you want me to pick a book that shows that God rewards the obedient and the rule follower. Perhaps you want me to pick a book that teaches us how to obey the word and get our act together. Perhaps you want me to pick a book that says, this is how it's done. Here's the God-inspired Bible heroes that have done it. Just follow them. Here's the problem with that. There's only four books of the Bible that have that story specifically. And that's the Gospels. And that's because they're the ones with Jesus in it. Outside of that... That's all we've got in the Bible for the guy who had his act together and did it right and that we're supposed to follow and emulate. So other than that, we're going to need to figure out what God does with a bunch of failures. 
We're going to need to figure out whenever, whenever people fail, how does God respond to those failures? And I think if you and I are honest, and it, doesn't honest, it, it really doesn't take a lot of honesty, if we're honest, I think you and I both know that we can relate to the stories of the failures quite a bit. We can relate to the stories of the failures and those that get it wrong far more than those that we think get it right. So we're going to look at what happens when God works in spite of deep rejection and unfaithfulness. We're going to see the love of a God who refuses to simply cast out those whom he has set his love upon and how in spite of failure, in spite of sin, in spite of rebellion, because this will be the marker of the book of Judges. Sin, failure, and rebellion. In spite of all those, Israel never lost hope because God never abandoned them. And how that can teach us that as dark as this world gets, as dark as our times are, as dark as our news feed is, as many times as we fail, our failure, the darkness that surrounds us, none of that, it never, ever eliminates the hope of God. And so this summer, while we're going to talk about all these dark things and while we're going to study these stories as they are are here in Scripture, we're not going to gloss over them. We're not going to pretend that they're not there. I hope if I do my job well, what you walk away with this is not darkness, but the light that's there. And if we can walk away with that, I think that will help us far more than pretending that these guys had it all right and we're supposed to somehow be strong like Samson and and do these type of things because that's not going to be helpful. But it is going to be helpful whenever we see how failures maintain their hope in God. And so we'll talk about the failures and the blood and the sadness and all the uncomfortable stuff. And it is uncomfortable, but we won't dwell there. And we'll tell the story that the author... And God ultimately want us to hear. This book was, it has an anonymous author. We don't know exactly who wrote it. It's probably Samuel, but we don't know for sure. But whoever it is, you'll need to remind yourself as we go throughout this series, as we read each of these stories, uh, that the author has a message. The author has an agenda for us. He's trying to tell us a story in all of these individual stories that he has. This isn't pure history that we're getting as though it's just a, 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 a recitation of facts and things that happened. This is, story, this is history told with an agenda, told through a lens for a purpose. Which in case you don't know, that's the only way history is ever told. It always has an agenda. It always has a purpose based on the one who's telling the story. And as Samuel, I assume, tells us this story, he has an agenda for us. So remember that. Like, this is not just read the story, what happens in the story, the story stands along, alone. Instead, what we need to do is we've got to take kind of all of it together and say, why does this story fit here in this larger picture? The author wants us to see something about God through the failure of his people. So the setting for the book is immediately following the book of Joshua. Uh, it's, it's Joshua judges Ruth, as I said. And it's following the success of Israel's conquest to the promised land. It's picking up the story in in maybe the highest note in the history of Israel. It's picking up the story where Israel is like, we're here, we've arrived, 
all is well. Everything that was promised to Abraham, everything that was promised uh, even, even to Moses, everything that was promised in the Exodus that the Exodus foretold of, everything that was promised, we've now taken hold of. We're on the mountaintop. We've got what God has for us. And so it picks up on this high note, and that's what makes these first couple of chapters so compelling. Because the first chapter has this record of all these wars and all these battles that Israel won as they conquered the people of the promised land. It's, it's just victory after victory after victory. It's the montage in the movie of, of like them raising their flag over every city that they come to and celebrating and standing up on the city wall, raised fists, we're here, we've taken it over. That's chapter one of the book of Judges. If you want to read through it, that's what's there. But then in verse 27 of chapter 1, we see the first hiccup, the first, the first kind of uh, hint from the author that something's kind of awry. Something's not quite what it should be. And there's some foreshadowing in these verses. So verse 27, Judges chapter 1, verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shehan and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, or the, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. And what you see if you keep going there in chapter 1 is a list of all of these uh, different tribes of Israel and how they did not drive out the inhabitants. They did not drive out the inhabitants. They did not drive out the inhabitants. It says it over and over and over as they go through there. And here's why this is such a, a, a big deal, why this refrain keeps repeating. The tribes of Israel did good work. Like I said, it's the victory montage, the raised fist, all is well. But they did not complete the task they were given. The task that they were given was to drive them out completely. Either eliminate them or get them out of town. Not take them as, as, as slaves, not take them as uh, as like enemy combatants, not take them as, as anything like that, but get them out of there, no trace of them left in the cities. But they didn't complete their task. They stopped when it was practical and pragmatic for them to stop. And it's that, that little hesitation that ultimately becomes their downfall. So you have to go back a little bit. What is happening here is that the promise of Abraham is spectacularly brought to fruition through this story. Go all the way back to Moses. Go all the way back to, 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 to Moses and to Egypt. Uh, God shows his faithfulness in bringing his people out of Egypt, bringing them out of Egypt, and, and, and then... Uh, on the way to the promised land. So you go back to Abraham. He has the promise. Moses comes on the scene, leads the people out of Egypt. And even as God shows his faithfulness in this great moment, even as God shows his faithfulness coming out of Egypt, Moses has to intercede just to keep God from wiping out his own people 
because they started making golden calves. You remember this story, right? So they come out. Uh, they come out. Moses goes up the mountain, and while he's up the mountain, Aaron's like, "Hey, we're tired of waiting on him. We need to worship something." And they start making the same idols that they had just left in Egypt. So even as God is showing his faithfulness, the people of God are showing that they are unfaithful, worshiping idols almost immediately after leaving Israel. Then after time, wandering in the desert as a punishment for their unfaithfulness, the people of God get to see God's faithfulness in a new way out in the desert. They see the manna and the quail and the miraculous deliverance from sickness and injury. They see all these ways that God is working. Then Moses passes the torch to Joshua. Joshua now spectacularly leads or shows God's faithfulness in leading all of Israel on conquest of the promised land. And again, God's might and faithfulness is on full display. There's a few negative things here and there, a few things that happen. But for the most part, you have Joshua leading armies, marching around cities, and generally just kicking tail all over the promised land and taking over the land that had been promised to Abraham. Joshua ends on a high note and then kind of hands the story off to judges. It starts on this high note and then quickly things start to fall apart again. What we see is the golden calf comes back around. It's the same thing that we've already seen from the earlier generations. Mark Twain is reported to have said that history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And goodness the next verse of this song just keeps going. If you'll remember Elijah and Elisha, that's what's going to follow a little bit later in our story. The song keeps playing, right? Why was Elijah so, so zealous whenever he went up to the top of Mount Carmel? What was Elijah trying to do? He was trying to show that God was the one God, that Yahweh was the one God, and that the people of Israel needed to repent of their worship of other gods. Does that sound familiar? It's the exact same thing that happens with Moses. It happens in Judges. It happens in, with Elijah and Elisha. It just keeps going. And here in Judges 1, the song that plays is one of partial obedience. And it would be good for us to understand this truth today, just kind of as an aside. Partial obedience is disobedience. God's people have been given the land. They simply have to follow God's direction. They settle for less, and now the book of Judges has its setting. Now the book of Judges has its plot, and the beginning of chapter 2 gives us the theme. So Judges chapter 2, verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. And you shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. But they shall become thorns in your sides. And their gods shall be a snare to you. That's the theme of the rest of the book. That's the setting for everything. And it's the riddle that plagues all of the Old Testament. It's found right here in these verses. I don't know if you saw it or not, but it's there. It's the riddle that plagues the Old Testament. How can God be faithful to an unfaithful people? How can God keep a covenant 
that he said he would never break with a people that can't seem to maintain any type of loyalty or fidelity to that covenant. This is the question that hangs over the entire Old Testament. How does a good God and a just God keep a, keep a covenant to a people who, frankly, seem not interested in keeping that covenant at all? And then starting in verse 6, you get what is essentially a second introduction to the book, kind of a, a second way of looking at it, a, a rehashing of how we got here to this place. So Judges chapter 2, verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. So they went and they said, we've arrived, we're here. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him with the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the Mount of, of Gash. So this is all standard history stuff, right? So all the people went and did their thing. The elders saw all that God did. Joshua died. Everybody took their place. And he was buried. So standard history stuff. All good. No big deal. Why are we getting this rehash of history here? Then verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord for the work that he had done for Israel. That is the indictment of the book of Judges. That God did all of these things in chapter 1 and chapter 2, all these things, the book of Joshua, all these things, the book of Exodus. <clears throat> God did all of these things, and that after all of these things, just one to two generations later, they did not know the Lord or the work that he had done. So this is the problem at another angle. So one problem, they didn't drive everyone out, and then just a few generations later, so partial obedience, which is disobedience, a couple of generation laters, lead, generations later leads to this right here. They don't know the Lord. God's faithfulness has been spectacularly on display since the days of Moses. Yet within one to two generations, the people had completely forgotten. They had taken for granted the story that brought them this far. And they had shifted their posture of worship and obedience. And what we're going to see if you keep, as we keep going here in chapter 2 and all throughout this book, they shifted to kind of a, a, a posture of compromise and pragmatism. In just a couple of generations, they had been discipled away from Yahweh. How crazy is that? How crazy is it that, that it can be so close, so just right there, just, just a, a, a word from grandpa could tell them the amazing things that he had seen. And these amazing things could somehow just be forgotten. How does that happen? More to the point, how do we keep that from happening to us? 
Let, let me show you how it happens. Judges chapter 2, verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord of the, the and they abandoned the Lord, that's all caps, so they abandoned Yahweh, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them. So if you're wondering, why did they have to drive out all these other people? Isn't it just enough to rule them and subdue them? Well, here's your answer. No, it's not. They needed to drive them out because this is what happens. This is the story of Israel. Remember, Elijah and Elisha, again, the same thing. They worshipped the other gods from the people around them. And they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. And they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. They were able to forget God in part because it didn't feel like they were rebelling against God. They didn't realize they were turning their back on God. I don't think they had a, a, a conference where they got everyone together and they said, hey, I know what grandpa said. I know the stories grandma told, but we've not seen all that stuff. As far as I'm concerned, this political alliance here, worshiping this God, bringing this one in here, bringing this God in over here, what's the harm? It's only going to make things better for us. They worship this one. They say that this one helps their crops grow. My crops have been a little weak the last year or two. Let's bring this one in. They worship this one over here. We've had trouble with this. Let's bring this one in over here. And they just start adding some others. They start bringing in some others. They didn't reject Yahweh. They didn't come together and say, we're turning our back on Yahweh. They just started adding the other gods to go next to him. What they don't realize is that every time they chase after another God, they have to leave Yahweh to do it. There are no half measures and shared devotion. Friends, hear me this morning. This is how Satan works. We, we've got this idea that what Satan wants is absolute allegiance from us to him. He doesn't need that. He doesn't want that. He's perfectly content to share your allegiance with all kinds of other things. He's perfectly content as long as he can draw your focus away from God, as long as he can put other things in front of you, he's perfectly happy to share you with whatever else you want to pursue. They didn't realize they were turning their back on God. They didn't reject him. They just added a few more. And it's how Satan still works today. One step, one click, one purchase, one hit, one cheer, one post, one fear, whatever it is to get that hook in you and get it set, that's all he needs. And then he can turn your heart in all kinds of directions. And all day, every day, He's putting those little gods before us, seeing which one will bite on. Seeing which one of those little things, those bales, that, that, that word bale is kind of like a general word for other gods. It's not like there's one bale, there's multiple little bales. There's multiple little gods around. And he'll put whichever ones are out there. 
You don't like this? Well, what about this? You don't like that? Well, that's fine. I got more over here. Let me see what else I got in the back. I'll bring it out. What about this over here? This one doesn't look enticing. This one's acceptable in social circles. What about this one? How about this over here? It never stops. It's always before us. All day long, we face the same challenges and temptations. God's names have changed. It's not Baal and Ashtoreth now, but it's all the same. It's all built with the same agenda to lure our hearts away, to take us away from Yahweh. Some are illicit and judged with contempt. Some are accepted and hardly anyone blinks an eye. But the goal is the same. Make us love something more than we love God. A politician, that's fine. A girlfriend or a boyfriend, that works too. Power, money, fame, those will do just fine. The applause of others, sure. A drink, a drug, a food, comfort, ease, security, those are all good too. Ourselves, that's maybe the biggest and the easiest to miss. They all suffice. The more, the merrier. You don't have to walk away from God. You just need to bring these other gods alongside and pretend that you can worship them all together. That is the siren song of Satan. And it plays to us at all times in all places. The song never stops playing. The people of Israel chased after these other gods. They were completely unfaithful. So what does God do in response to this abandonment by his people? Dismiss them, cut them off, walk away from them, and destroy them, wipe them off the face of the earth. No, instead it says that he intervenes. And this is where the book of Judges comes in. It's where the judges come in. Now when we say judges... I need to make sure that we kind of clear up what we're talking about here. This is not Judge Judy that we're talking about. We're not picturing somebody sitting like on a, uh, you know, in in their black robe, adjudicating decisions in front of someone saying, you know what, you got to pay that $250 to them because you did this to their yard and we got to figure this out. This is not what we're talking about. Likely these guys that we, these, these guys I say that generally. We have some ladies in here too. These, uh, these men and women who serve as judges, likely they did just that. They, they worked through these decisions. But we have almost no record of that in the book of Judges. Why? Because Samuel doesn't care about that. The author doesn't care about that. That's not part of his agenda. His agenda is to show how God uses these judges. Okay? So... Their purpose that they serve in this narrative is much bigger. So, so when we say uh, judges, it's better if you think of it as deliverers. You could just substitute that word in there, right? When we talk about these different judges, they are the deliverers of Israel or the saviors of Israel. It's the same idea. God will use them as salvation for his people. But what we're going to see is that as he raises up these judges, they are so, such broken people 
that they never suffice to do what they are supposed to do. It's why the title of this series is called Shattered Saviors, because it shows the brokenness of the saviors that are before us and how in the midst of all these other saviors that we keep bringing on, all these other saviors that we keep, we keep running to, all these other gods that we keep thinking will bring us all the things that we need, ultimately those things fail us. They do not suffice. Even as God raises up saviors, the story is about their failure almost every time. And even as God intervenes, they do not listen. Look in verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges. For they whored after other gods and they bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up the judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved, saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Now, who is it that afflicted and oppressed them? It's the people they didn't drive out of the land. So even in their sin and their disobedience, God is, it says he is moved to pity as they deal with the consequences of their sin. Is that the Old Testament God that you've heard of? I'm going to guess the Old Testament God that you've heard of is the one of fire and wrath and the one who doesn't love people and the one who's just out to destroy people. That's the Old Testament God. That's not true. The Old Testament God is gracious just like the New Testament God is gracious. He never changes. He is immutable. It just works itself out in different ways. And this God who has watched his people be unfaithful time and time and time again is, 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 is moved to pity by the groaning of people under the weight of their own sin. What a gracious God. And he's moved to intervene on behalf of his people by raising up judges. And what does it say that, he, that they did whenever they raised up the judges? Yet they did not listen to their judges. Even as God is moved to pity, to rescue them, to intervene on their behalf, they dismiss the one who had come to save them. Said earlier that history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And the song of the book of Judges is a song that was first sung, the first verse was sung by Adam and Eve. It just has new verses to add with each generation, with each of our lives. You can hear the rhyming pattern in the golden calf, you can hear it in the failing of the judges. You can hear it in the failure of Israel and the failure of the kings of Israel in Elijah and Elisha. You can hear it in the warnings of the prophets. You can hear it in the anger of Nehemiah as he confronts those that are, that are, that are, marrying, that are intermarrying and chasing after other gods. You can hear it in the backlash of the Pharisees when they hear Jesus teach. You can hear it in the questioning of Pilate when he says what is truth. You can hear it in the chants of crucify him and you can hear it loudly as the child shouts out, we want Barabbas. 
And while we can hear the, we, we can read the lyrics and we can hear the song from the pages of Scripture, you and I get a live performance of it played over and over on our TV, TV screens, in our election cycles, in our news programs. But sadly, we hear the verse the loudest. We know the verse the best when we're the ones that are joining in with the chorus. Maybe even the ones that are singing the solo. We know this rhyming history. We know the story of the judges because it's our story too. Unfaithful people. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We confess it in the songs that we sing. It sounds like the very last verse of Judges. It's the story of our world. It's the story of Israel. It's the story of America. And it's the story of our own hearts. The very last verse. Judges 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? In those days, in those days, this is talking about those days, but you could say in these days, there was no king in our hearts. And we all did what was right in our own eyes. The good news, even in this dark picture that is painted of broken and insufficient saviors, even in this dark picture of, of people chasing after other gods, even in this dark picture that we have where, where everyone does what is right in their own eyes, the hope never completely fades. The light never goes out amidst the darkness. And even though it may grow faint at times, it never left Israel. And because of Jesus, it never left us either. I hope this summer you will be back as we walk through these different judges and kind of the ways that they succeeded, the ways that they failed, and we consider what that teaches us about the goodness of God, what it means to have hope. Some of you in here walked in here this morning feeling like a failure. It didn't take convincing for me to tell you that you're a failure and that you need hope. But a lot of you probably walked in here feeling pretty good about yourself. Not convinced you're a failure? Not convinced that you've completely fallen on your face or that you would fit in this category of the people of Israel who have turned your back on God because you didn't walk away from God? But I'm just telling you, man, the story of Israel is our story. Drawn to other gods, a little to the right, a little to the left, and then a little more to the left, and a little more to the right. And then it just kind of keeps going until suddenly we've turned our back on God and we're chasing after other gods just like Israel. We are failures too. Part of my job this summer is to convince you of that. But the bigger part of my job this summer is to convince you of the hope and the goodness of God even in our failure. And that because of Jesus Christ, the riddle of the Old Testament, how does God remain faithful to a people that are unfaithful without just completely dismissing their sin? The riddle of the Old Testament finds its answer not in broken and shattered saviors, but in the one Savior, Jesus Christ. And each one of these judges will point us to him and show us and say, this is the one whom we look to. He is our hope. 
So if you feel the weight of your failure this morning, you're in good company with the pages of Scripture and with the people in this room. I know I do. And if you walked in here and you felt like, man, I'm good, I just need to get through my day, get through my week, and then I'll just keep on trucking along, you may need a greater picture of hope than any of us. Because that hope in yourself, you will find at some point, you cannot be your own savior and you too will be shattered. And when that happens, you're going to need to know where to look for a savior that is whole and that can truly save you. And you'll only find that in Jesus Christ. That is our hope. That is our story and our testimony. And that's the story of the book of Judges. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning as we open this book, and as we read these stories about Baals and Asterisks, and we read about conquering nations and, and all these different things, it can feel like such abstract history. But Father, we know the song too well. We know exactly what it means to turn our back on you, to chase after other gods, to pursue other things, to desire things greater than we desire you. Father, we know that all too well. Father, I pray that you would help us to know the weight of our failure. Not to dismiss it, not to, to kind of cast it off, but to feel the depths of our failure so that we may know the greatness of our Savior. Draw our hearts to Jesus. Whatever it takes. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You would stand and worship with us.